0: THE REVOLT OF 2020 BY PATRICK JOHNSTON COPYRIGHT 2011 BY DR. PATRICK JOHNSTON READ BY DANIEL Meyer. By kind permission of the author, this reading of The Revolt of 2020 is available for free distribution. Stay tuned at the end of this reading for more information and links to additional resources. CHAPTER 11 Natalie pulled into her driveway after class to find her brother's van with black peeling paint parked there. Elijah! she shouted out her open window as she parked next to his van. Hey Nat. He got out of the van to greet his sister. He opened her door for her and helped her out of her car. It is so good to see you. She gave him a big hug as Elijah's companions stepped out of the van. Elijah gave the introductions. This is Jared. He pointed to the young lanky fellow coming out of the front seat of the van. David came around the other side of the car combing his messy brown hair back with his fingers. And this is David. It's good to meet you. Elijah pointed inside the van and that's David's wife Darlene. Darlene waved from inside the van as the four- and three-year-olds crawled out of the van and went to their father's side. One of our kids is asleep on her lap, said David. Elijah informed his sister they are very well behaved. It'll be tight, but much roomier than that van you've been riding in, Natalie said. David smiled and shook her hand again. Thank you so much for your hospitality. David muted the television during the commercials. They did it. What, inquired Elijah, stepping into the living room from the hallway. The Supreme Court did it, the American Medical Academy versus the United States. They overruled all state restrictions on physician-assisted suicide. Physician-assisted suicide is now the law of the land. Voluntary euthanasia only, he said with eyebrows raised, but with exceptions, of course. Of course, it was just a matter of time, David. Elijah did not appear at all surprised by the ruling. It's the same state of mind that justified abortion. David nodded. Can't afford them, poor quality of life, unwanted, unloved. The door opened and in stepped Jared. David looked up and couldn't believe his eyes. What in the world? What's up? Jared asked with a bashful grin. David stood to his feet and walked over to Jared with his jaw gaping open. Elijah just chuckled. What have you done to yourself? Jared had bleached his hair blonde. He wore loop earrings in both ears. He had a tattoo of a Confederate flag on his left shoulder, barely visible on red, oozing skin. He was sunburned and he wore a pair of tacky glasses with gold trim. He had donned cut-off blue jeans and a tank top. You look like an alien from outer space. What's the matter with your arm? David asked as he looked at the tattoo. They put some kind of antiseptic jelly over the tattoo. It'll heal, Jared said as he grinned sheepishly. I think the tattoo wasn't a good idea after two back-to-back 20-minute sessions in the tanning booth. Why did you do this? I hardly recognize you. That's why. I don't look like Jared Keaton. I didn't tell you because I didn't want you to talk me out of it. The eldest Jameson child, four-year-old Charlotte, walked into the room holding a doll, had one glimpse of Jared, and immediately burst into tears. She looked up at her father and mournfully asked, What's the matter with Jared? Jared moved toward Charlotte to embrace her, but that only made her cry harder. It's okay, it's still me. He took his glasses off and smiled, and one of his front teeth was capped with silver. Wah! she wailed. Jared, get away from her, Darlene ordered as she stepped briskly into the room. What in the world have you done to yourself? Jared sighed and casually made his way back to the couch as Darlene reached down to pick up and comfort her crying four-year-old. Charlotte wiped her tears and ran to her bedroom. Jared could hear her shout anxiously to her younger sister about how Jared looked like a sinner now. Would you rather have me locked up behind bars, Darlene? I can't stay cooped up in this house. David, they are searching for us and we take a chance of being recognized every time we go outside these doors. You know that we need to get out and get some work. He ignored the Jameson kids who stepped into the hallway to get a glimpse of him. Darlene was growing more appalled by the minute. That doesn't mean you go punk freak on us, Jared. You look so worldly. David was joining in the protest when Elijah intervened. I think it's a good idea. You've got to be kidding, said David. He can go out in public now. You can't. Now who's the smarter one? Out in public? Where? Woodstock? I'm going to the big protest downtown in a few days, said Jared. Supposed to be 100,000 people there, a tea party on steroids. You going, Elijah? Of course, said Jared. The pro-life, pro-family, and pro-Second Amendment groups are joining together for a big protest. Jared added, even police groups will be there, get that, to protest the arrest of Randy Woods in Montana. Bozeman, Montana As the adjutant general of the Montana State Guard, Bob Bryan, observed the feisty crowds outside the Bozeman Sheriff's Department from inside his car, his blood pressure rose. His whole body was heavy with a mix of anger, adrenaline, and grief. The infuriated Bozeman citizens whipped themselves into a frenzy over the arrest of Randy Woods. Bob Bryan had been a general in the Montana State Guard for eleven years and he had never faced a situation such as this. Arresting the popular Sheriff Randall Woods for failing to enforce the President's executive orders was one thing, but suspending habeas corpus to keep him locked up indefinitely without bail, without a formal charge, without an attorney, and without hope of a jury trial, enraged and emboldened the average apathetic Montana citizen. Thousands of messages from Montana citizens awaited him on his voicemail, email, and snail mail. It was not only a public relations nightmare, but it had the potential to be a statewide crisis of historic proportions. General Bryan had to this point tried to be neutral in light of the actions of the president, but the protests were forcing him to publicize his opposition. He picked up the phone and dialed a number. Having trouble, Agent Harris? Where have you been, shouted Ernie Harris, the Department of Justice agent who had been assigned Sheriff Randy Wood's desk and was now responsible for local law enforcement. We have a citywide riot in the infancy stage out here. Harris looked out the window at the hundreds of people who had almost completely surrounded the Bozeman Sheriff's office, shouting slogans, waving cowboy hats, and revving the engines of mud-covered pickup trucks with shotguns in the back window. Can you send some guard forces to put out the fires? Well, Mr. Harris, we will help you if you got an emergency down there, but I'm not convinced you do. We're about to have an emergency. Anybody hurt? Not yet. Well, you've got fellows who can handle legal gatherings of protesters, don't you? The mob is getting rowdy. I read threats on their signs and hear hate speech in their megaphones. Bob Bryan tried to conceal a chuckle at the federal agent's overstatement. Well, what kind of threats, Mr. Harris? Harris looked out the window at a farmer in dirty overalls holding a white poster board with words that had been scribbled in red marker, Feds Get Out. He read another sign, Release Sheriff Woods. He looked at one sign that had a cartoon caricature of Sheriff Woods giving Margaret Brighton a spanking with a paddle that had the word Montana written on it. Some of the signs have implied threats. Don't sound like threats to me, said General Bryan. I can always call the FBI and the BATF for reinforcements if you wish. The President will probably be sending Federal forces here soon, but I thought you'd want to take part in keeping the peace. No, 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 Mr. Harris, you don't need more federal troops on the street. Try something stupid like that and you just might have a real fire or two to put out. I'll send a few fellows down to help with your peacekeeping. I'd bring them in riot gear if I were you and... T- Click. General Bryan hung up the phone in the middle of Harris's sentence. Harris stared at the phone in his hands for a moment as if it were a serpent he held by the neck. He slammed it down on its cradle. Mr. Harris, he heard over his intercom, Victor Myers, line two. Harris enthusiastically picked up the phone and became frustrated with the knotted cord. Did your sheriff ever hear of cordless phones, he mumbled to himself. He tapped on the phone's intercom. Mr. Myers, thank you for returning my call. We have a situation. Two hours later, twelve Hummers arrived with four Montana State Guard soldiers in each. Each carried a semi-automatic handgun on his hip. They parked several blocks away and walked through the growing crowd of approximately a thousand people toward the police station. One of Mr. Harris's three secretaries poked her head inside his office. He pushed the mute button on his phone. I'm on the phone. Sir, the National Guard has arrived. No, it hasn't, he corrected her. I've just learned that the state legislature had the audacity to rename them the State Guard instead of National Guard to emphasize their subjection to the governor. Oh. Ernie Harris unmuted his phone and spoke into his headset microphone. They've arrived. I'll have to call you back. He stood up from behind his desk, pulled open the drapes, and looked cautiously out the window. They aren't even in riot gear. That's all they brought? Sidearms? Where are their riot sticks? He tapped the intercom button. Chris, get in here. A tall, stocky young man in a black wool trench coat entered hurriedly and stood in front of the desk. Get your men in formation behind those guardsmen around this building. Tell them where to be. Harris looked out the window again and saw protesters spilling onto the sidewalk in front of the building. And haven't I told you not to let those idiots obstruct the driveway? Yes, sir. The stocky federal agent began to shout orders into his two-way radio as he rushed from the room and back into the chaos. He had to wade through angry snarls and shouts of, Feds go home! Feds go home! His jog slowed to a fast walking pace as he made his way to the closest guardsman. I have your orders! He had to shout at the camel-clad state guardsman to be heard over the commotion. Who are you? asked the equally tall, muscular man with a thick, graying goatee and a tattoo of an M-16 assault rifle on the right side of his neck. Agent Nichols with the Department of Justice, and you are? Rod Sanders, but you can call me boss. Sanders did not make eye contact as he spoke, but shifted his gaze constantly, scanning his surroundings. Agent Nichols eyed the large, oval-shaped belt buckle with the insignia of a rebel flag engraved on the pewter plate. I have orders for your men from the Department of Justice assistant assigned to law enforcement. Sanders interjected, I don't take orders from anyone from D.C. We're under the authority of the governor. Sanders waved at a hunting buddy who walked along the sidewalk carrying a don't tread on me yellow flag. How you doing, Chip? Your General Bryan sent you to help us keep the peace. As Nichols spoke, his attention turned to the driver of a pickup truck with oversized tires who stopped in the road and shouted at him. The driver had a black cap with white letters M-O-M on the front. He basked in the attention the federal agent gave him. He began to rev the engine and spin his tires. Go back to Washington, you scum! In vain, Nichols ordered him to move on. The driver basked in the attention, balked, and mocked all the more. What are you going to do about it? The truck driver taunted him. Where's Sheriff Woods? Captain Rod Sanders bluntly asked the federal agent. Agent Nichols looked back at the guardsman, eyebrows raised. He has been removed for refusing to disseminate justice in accordance with the executive orders of the President of the United States. Haven't you been briefed? Where is he? Sanders reiterated. What does that matter, soldier? Do your duty. You were to place a fourth of your men on the left side of the driveway and... Sanders interrupted. I told you I don't take orders from any overfed bureaucrat from D.C. General Bryan has ordered me to keep the peace and I think these fine folk are being peaceful enough. Agent Nichols tapped a button on his two-way radio and called three more federal agents to him. As they scurried through the crowd, Nichols looked back at the pickup driver who continued to taunt him. Go back to that communist slime hole you came out of! The man continued to rev his engine in the middle of the road, squealing his tires intermittently. Bystanders cheered as the truck's tires began to smoke. Nichols looked back at the guardsman. You call this nut peaceful? He watched the billows of smoke expand out from the spinning tires and took a step back. He's probably violating EPA clean air standards. Rod Sanders put his head back and laughed heartily at that comment. You've got to be kidding. Welcome to Montana, man. Agent Nichols saw two other guardsmen standing on the side of the road, joining with the protesters in their chant, Feds go home! Feds go home! One of them was holding aloft a large sign with a black-and-white picture of Sheriff Woods on it, which apparently another protester had lent him. Why don't you all just pack up your briefcases and head on back to that pit of depravity across the Potomac, Rod Sanders boldly suggested. Tell Brighton that Montana won't sniff her gun control, her sodomy, and her baby-killing communism. Agent Nichols abruptly turned and made his way back toward the office as the other three agents followed close behind. And if you know what's good for you, you'll let Randy Woods go before we make you, shouted the guard captain. Agent Nichols walked straight into Harris's office without knocking and saw him peeking through the drapes at the growing commotion outside. I know, Harris said. The FBI and BATF are on their way. Lasseter, Montana. Charlie, are you going to Bozeman? A seventeen-year-old boy stuck his head out of his Volkswagen bug and called out to his buddy Charlie Starr. Why don't you come with us? Gotta work today, Ev, responded Charlie Starr as he dispensed fuel into Everett's vehicle. The twenty-year-old redhead was an aspiring mechanic but didn't have the money for his education yet, so he worked at a one-pump gas station on a lonely mountain road. The owner of the gas station walked up in his overalls with an oily pink rag hanging out of one pocket. Mr. Masters, why don't you let Charlie off today? Everybody's going to the protest. And everybody going needs gas to get there, the owner said matter-of-factly. Charlie gazed at his boss as if he were being denied his sole Christmas present on Christmas morning. The gas station owner massaged his whisker-covered wrinkles. Ah, go ahead and take the day off, Charlie. But I really need the money, Mr. Masters. You can have the shift Sunday after church. Thanks, Mr. Masters. Charlie hung up the gasoline dispenser and turned to Everett. Park that pathetic VW and ride with me in my pickup. Bozeman, Montana. Charlie and Everett had intended to drive by the sheriff's department before parking, but yellow caution tape had been strung up waist-high between orange barrels across the road about 20 yards from the sheriff's department in both directions. Sidearm-bearing and shotgun-toting FBI agents wearing black outfits with the white letters of their bureau across their hats and jackets stood about twenty feet away from the tape. They watched anxiously as the protesters stirred themselves into fits of passionate fervor and red-faced fury. The air was unseasonably cool this morning, as it is on occasion in Montana. The relentless chants of the protesters expelled a wintry mist like the dust buffaloes kick up before they begin to charge an intruder in solidarity. People filled the closed-off streets in both directions. The observers further away from the sheriff's office were more subdued. Some laughed and exchanged stories with old friends, some entrepreneurs sold food, drink, and protest paraphernalia, and some just held signs peacefully along the sides of the road. Dozens of local deputies and policemen arrived in full uniform to show their support for the protest as well as to discourage people from getting out of hand. The presence of these sympathetic officers had a calming effect on the more radical protesters. Harris had called for local law enforcement in surrounding counties to send all available personnel immediately, but they declined to help. Bob Bryan, adjutant general of the Montana State Guard, had refused to answer calls to his home or office. The parking lot in front of an office supply store beside the sheriff's office was packed with protesters. The owner had apparently given locals permission to gather on his property, and hundreds had taken advantage of the space. It was standing room only. On the other side and to the rear of the sheriff's station was farmland. Hundreds of protesters stood between rows of young potato plants at the urging of the property owner. Television cameras had arrived and protesters were interviewed regularly. The president can't do whatever she wants to, a woman carrying a baby said into the camera. We're a nation of laws. What has Sheriff Woods done wrong? Nothing. The president is acting like she's the law of the land, and she ain't. A particularly obnoxious member of the militia of Montana nicknamed Bull was thrilled to be given a spontaneous interview with a well-known CNN reporter. Bull was the same fellow who had taunted Agent Nichols from the seat of his large pickup truck earlier. The white letters MOM on his black cap were the acronym for the militia of Montana. The CNN reporter interviewed him as he sat proudly in his oversized truck. He had a hunting rifle in the rear window and a shotgun stashed under his seat. He passionately stated that Brighton was a witch and Congress was full of homos and that they should be ousted from their seats of power and hung. Of course, this was the primary interview that the major media played on their stations throughout the day, much to the delight of Bull and Margaret Brighton. CNN also played an interview of Attorney General Victor Myers throughout the morning in which he pleaded for protesters to respect the decision of the president to remove the insubordinate sheriff of Bozeman. We assure you that authority will be restored to local powers as soon as possible. When, asked an anxious reporter who stood close to the front, That is President Brighton's decision. We have allegations of gross injustice in his district, and we have evidence of his refusal to act upon terror-related activities. Even at the insistence of the Department of Justice and the administration, he refused to comply with the law and arrest suspects. There are some other charges that will be forthcoming in the next few days. What charges? inquired another reporter. I am not at liberty to discuss the details of those investigations. Everett found only static as he turned the radio dial of Charlie's pickup truck. Why won't your radio work? It's busted. Charlie pulled into the parking lot of a department store about half a mile away from the Bozeman Sheriff's Office. Along with your blinkers, your speedometer, and your A.C. Charlie got out of the truck and walked over to a couple sitting in the bed of a pickup truck next to him. When he saw that they were listening to the radio, he asked, what's the news? This station reported a couple of minutes ago that armored escorts are heading across town from the airport. What? Charlie jumped on the hood of his truck and looked in the direction of the airport. Airport's that way, I think, he said as he pointed east. You're denting your hood. Now I know why your radio doesn't work. An elderly man walking past them with a walkie-talkie to his ear suddenly exclaimed, The Feds are here! Charlie saw an SUV heading down the road toward the crowd with its horn beeping and lights flashing. A couple of teens had their heads out the windows and were shouting at passersby. He jumped off the hood and he and Everett began to press through the crowd to make their way to the street. What are the people in that SUV saying? Troops are coming! Someone closer to the road shouted in their direction. Charlie and Everett joined hundreds of mingling loiterers in the parking lot as they began to jog toward the road. Charlie climbed on top of a wooden fence post by the road and searched in the direction opposite the sheriff's department. He could see the tops of the camouflaged armed escorts rumbling toward them. There were twenty camouflaged Bradley fighting vehicles, each carrying twenty FBI personnel in full SWAT gear. They were armed with tear gas canisters and shock sticks, which released a debilitating voltage from the tip upon contact. They had fully automatic weapons over their shoulders and slings. Most of the soldiers had rubber bullets in their clips, with a clip of live ammo at the ready. The protesters who filled the roadway moved aside as the ominous vehicles slowly moved down the street. They screeched to a halt when one man refused to move. I'm the mayor of this town, the elderly gentleman in a black sports coat and red tie shouted. I order you to stop these vehicles. The vehicles appeared to slow as he obstructed their path and there were too many pedestrians on the sides of the two-lane road for them to bypass him. Charlie and Everett came upon the scene and stood near the brave elderly man in the black sports coat whom Charlie recognized as the mayor of Bozeman. Charlie became worried that the first vehicle, which was still coasting slowly towards the mayor, might actually strike him. He considered pulling him out of the way to keep him from being run over. However, the front vehicle skidded to a halt two feet in front of the courageous mayor. The crowd cheered for a moment, and those who were scurrying away stopped and returned to celebrate their mayor's courage. In just a few short moments, hundreds were obstructing the path of the federal armored vehicles. Move aside, blared a speaker in the front of the first armored vehicle. By what constitutional authority do you come into our town with vehicles of war, shouted the mayor. As the nearby protesters adopted his boldness and shouted their disapproval of the Fed's military presence, This is unlawful! A middle-aged woman wearing a full-length light blue dress with her pepper-colored hair in a bun walked up beside the mayor carrying a sign with a picture of Randy Woods affixed. The words on the sign read, Release my husband. What have you done with Randy? Some friends came up behind her and placed their hands on her shoulders to comfort her as she railed at the motionless vehicles. The boldness and tenacity of the mayor and Mrs. Woods was contagious, and protesters gathered closer to the first armored carrier and then the second, all shouting in unison, Feds, go home! Feds, go home! The armored vehicles soon found themselves surrounded by protesters. Suddenly, an ear-piercing shrill sounded from the first and then the other armored carriers. It was a painful, piercing siren that ruptured eardrums and drove many to their knees with their hands cupped over their ears. Those nearest the vehicles had nowhere to run as the crowd was packed in tightly behind them. Most of the crowd refused to move in spite of the blaring noise. The mayor was immovable. He removed his hearing aids and continued to shout at the first vehicle even though the people right beside him could not hear a word he said. The first armored vehicle started to move forward a few inches but came to a halt again when the mayor and the crowd who had bravely gathered behind him refused to move. Without warning, tear gas canisters shot out of openings on every side of the armored vehicles. The heavy aluminum canisters pelted three protesters in the head and shoulders. One whizzed right by Charlie's head and smacked Everett, who was standing right behind him, in the forehead. Everett's body went limp and he fell to the ground. Everett's head struck the cement with a nauseating thud. He began to seize from the concussion. Blood spurted from a circle-shaped indentation in his forehead. The mayor also fell to all fours, blinded by the white gas that sprayed from the canister that flew by his head. Everett! Charlie Starr knelt beside his good friend. When he inhaled the toxic fumes, his eyes welled up with painful tears and his throat began to burn. Everett! He managed to shout once more before beginning to cough uncontrollably. His friend's eyes rolled back into his head as the seizure grew more violent. Blood covered Everett's white face, vomit heaved from his spasming stomach and bubbled from the corner of his mouth. Charlie looked back at the Bradley fighting vehicle as it jolted forward a couple of feet, threatening to run them over. The mayor clawed the ground beside him in a state of panic, coughing, gagging, and pulling at his ears and burning eyes. People were coughing and screaming all around them, trampling each other as they attempted to run away from the billowing gas canisters. Those closest to the armored vehicles were paralyzed by the intolerable noise and billowing gas, so they gasped and clawed at their throats and fell in a fit of pain and panic. Television cameras, from as close a position as the cameraman dared to tread, zoomed in on the chaotic scene of suffering, as Montanans who were able fled away from the street with beet-red faces, coughing, gagging, and vomiting intermittently. Suddenly, much to the dismay of the few protesters who kneeled or squatted in pain close to the armored vehicles, all the doors of the vehicles flew open at once and a flood of black-clothed, fully-armed soldiers wearing gas masks swept into the street to move protesters out of the way for the vehicles. They began to kick and throw protesters out of the road to make a path for the vehicles. As Charlie dragged Everett from the front of the Bradley by pulling on his hands, he was suddenly kicked in the back by one of the soldiers. He was propelled forward by the forceful kick, and Everett's head smacked the ground again. Charlie grabbed his painful right flank and looked back, and through burning tears and squinting eyes he saw a Federal agent extend a black rod toward him. The sirens had stopped, but his ears were still ringing, and he could not understand the orders that were being shouted at him. The agent touched him in the shoulder with the rod, and he felt a surge of electricity flow into his shoulder and through his body. He was knocked back onto his side and could not control his body for a brief moment. He sat up and began to breathe rapidly as he looked with blurred vision at the melee. He was confused, momentarily unaware of his surroundings. He looked down and saw Everett at his feet, and he remembered where he was. He got up on one knee, grabbed Everett's hands, and tried to pull him further away from the armored vehicles that followed on the heels of dozens of SWAT soldiers. More canisters were fired in the direction of the sheriff's department. Everett! Everett! He looked all around him for someone to come to Everett's aid. Help! He screamed. He looked up as the first armored vehicle passed him, and one of the soldiers pointed his automatic weapon at him from about ten feet away. A spray of rubber bullets connected with his chest and abdomen and sent him to his back on the ground, gasping and reeling in pain. Charlie never even heard the blast. It felt like someone had just run him through with four swords at the same time. He rolled into the fetal position, grabbing his abdomen and screaming in short bursts of horror as his diaphragm cramped. He rolled onto his side and could see the breathless grimace of the mayor about five feet from him. The mayor's wrinkled face was blistered red and his eyes were bloodshot and fixed motionless on a point in midair. His lips drooling with bilious fluid were partially open as if he were screaming one last protest before breathing his last. Washington, D.C. President Brighton was furious when Hamilton briefed her. The men did what they thought they had to, Madam President. It was a hard call, he told her over the laptop connection. Brighton bit her lip and looked down for a moment. How many dead? Six dead, about eighty injured. Any of our men? One dead and one wounded. The survivor is in surgery now. Did they catch the perpetrator? No, ma'am, not yet. The files from the outdoor video surveillance cameras of nearby stores were mysteriously missing. The only cooperative witness was the wounded agent. President Brighton cursed under her breath. It could have been worse, Hamilton informed her. When the violence ensued, Montana Guard General Bob Bryan gave the senior guardsman on the scene, Captain Rod Sanders, permission to engage if he felt so inclined. Wait, said the President, engage us? Captain Sanders was actually preparing to try to repel the Federal forces and we had to threaten him to keep him at bay. The President was not expecting that level of resistance and it made her pause to count the cost. Retreat was not an option for her. If they were going to push her, she was going to push back. Let's place a dawn-till-dusk curfew on the town. Homeland Security thinks that it will go great lengths in either calming the anxious or else stirring them up to expose themselves so they can be apprehended. Go get those high-risk members of the militia. Todd Hamilton crossed his arms and sarcastically thought to himself, Sure, no problem, no problem at all. Deer Lodge, Montana Bull threw open the door to the trailer where his twin brother Stein and their friend Lonnie were reclining on the couch watching the news on television. Bull sang the words, THE FUN HAS ARRIVED, while pointing at them with his right index finger and holding a shotgun in the air with his other hand. Thank you very much. Stein jumped up, startled. What the dickens do you think you're doing? His black beret with the Confederate flag ironed onto the front fell off his head and he bent down to pick it up. Where have you been? Lonnie sat up on the couch, wide-eyed, anxiously waiting to hear a first-hand account from someone who was present at the protest when the feds arrived. What a day! You guys wouldn't have believed it. Tell us about it, Stein beckoned his brother toward a chair. Did you catch my CNN interview? Yeah, man, Stein said, slapping Bull a high five. Do you know anything about the two feds who were shot? Lonnie asked. With a semi-automatic 10-round Remington 12-gauge, Bull grinned from ear to ear as he sat on the edge of the couch clutching the guilty weapon. No, said Lonnie with a smile just as wide. You? Never been prouder of anything I ever did in my whole life, Bull thumped the stock of his shotgun, his face beaming. He was downright giddy as if he'd just won the lottery. he gripped his shotgun so hard that his knuckles were white. Stein was not in the least bit pleased. With a scowl of disapproval, he reached over and snatched the shotgun out of Bull's grasp. How can you be happy about that? It was justified. These two feds were shooting the protesters with rubber bullets. One girl was on her hands and knees, screaming from the tear gas that was sprayed in her face, and this fed kept shocking her over and over again with this rod. He acted as if he were holding a rod and extending it towards Stein. He was brutal, so I ran and got my shotgun. Lonnie was amazed. Oh, man. I squeezed through the crowd, which was beginning to thin a little by this point, point. In one shot. Blam! he said, demonstrating how he had held the gun and how it recoiled. Right in the head! There was so much commotion that only one other fed saw it, and I shot him before he shot me. You idiot! There were video cameras everywhere! Bull stood up, reached into his back pocket, and dropped two DVDs into Stein's lap. Now the media will get copies of all the stuff that makes the feds look bad, but we have to edit out the clips that implicate me. Oh yes! Lonnie cheered. We're gonna flood the net with this video! How in the world did you get these? Stein asked, fondling the DVDs and noting the date stamps on the front of them. With the chaos all around, it was easy. There were only a couple of stores nearby that had surveillance cameras getting footage of the area. I also took off my hat and put a handkerchief over my face when I got my gun, Bull assured them. No one will be able to identify me. Lonnie, always entertained by the radical conspiracy theories and infinite enthusiasm of the Siebert brothers, began to laugh like a little boy at a circus show. If you were wearing the same clothes in other surveillance videos, they're going to figure out who you are, Stein, the smarter of the duo, informed him. Those cameras are everywhere. They're gonna catch you. You know we'd all be put away if they could prove we knew about it and didn't turn you in. Ah, quit your whining. Bull was irritated by his brother's lack of excitement over his patriotic bravery in battle. How did it feel, Bull, to kill a fed? asked Lonnie. Bull stretched his hands over his head and sighed deeply as one would after a satisfying Thanksgiving meal. Oh man, it was like a honeymoon. Stein reached over and grabbed a piece of paper on top of the television. Well, the honeymoon's over, lover boy. He handed him the piece of paper with Jack Handel's phone number on it. Jack was the leader of their local militia chapter. Jack's ticked about your CNN interview. He wants you to call him. What? Little Jackie upset with me saying what everybody is thinking? He's not happy with you justifying violence against the feds with this on your head. Stein snatched the black cap with the M.O.M. acronym on it off Bull's head, then tossed the cap back in Bull's lap. He said you're going to get all of us arrested if you don't learn when to shut up. Thank you for listening to this reading from the Revolt of 2020. This chapter was read by Daniel Meyer and engineered by Park Leacock. The Revolt of 2020 and its sequels, The American Tyranny of 2020 and The Uncivil War of 2020, are available for purchase at docjohnstonnovels.com. That's Novels.com. O oh Lord, turn us back to you, forgive our sins, and heal our land.